Hey there, listeners. This is Mac Christian with the National Land Realty Podcast. Now, before we jump in here, I have a request for you. The request is simple. If you find value in the content that we're producing about land, please make sure to leave a review about the podcast and rate it. If you're enjoying the topics that we cover, your review is going to help other people find that same content. You know, unless it's a one-star review and you only have terrible things to say, but even then, maybe we'll get some entertainment value out of it. Thank you again for listening. Let's get to it. Welcome to episode number 13 of the National Land Realty Podcast, where we discuss all things land. Our goal here is to inform, educate, and entertain those of you who own land or are interested in the buying and selling of land throughout the United States. My name is Mac Christian, and I am the Chief Marketing Officer here at National Land Realty. I'll be your host for this episode. Now, we're trying out a new approach to the podcast. We're breaking down these episodes into a little bit more bite-sized listening times. Haven't made a huge push to shorten the episodes because I really want to make sure to cover the topics as comprehensively as possible, but that can create some long listening times. So, this episode will be broken down into two parts. What's this mean for you as the listener? If you like this episode, stay tuned. There's more. Now, today's episode will cover agricultural land from the perspective of buying or selling it, as well as the current market conditions for agricultural land. Our guest, Ryan Schroeder, is a land professional from Omaha, Nebraska, and he has decades of experience in land real estate and a lifetime of agricultural knowledge. Ryan has been hunting and fishing and farming since he could walk. He's an accredited land consultant through the Realtors Land Institute, and his focus is on agricultural land sales. Now, sit back and enjoy the show. All right, I'm sitting here with Mr. Ryan Schroeder out of Omaha, Nebraska. Uh, so first question, Ryan, do you know Warren Buffett? I don't know him personally, no. but I wish I did. I wish I was uh, some long distance uh, relation of his, to tell you the truth. Well, I mean, it wouldn't really help you out. He's cut all of his kids out of his inheritance, right? So, I mean, he's, he's making Yeah, but I still have a feeling. I think they're set up pretty good. There's probably an edge there, especially being, you know, the, just, the, just the name, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, I, I had to ask that. That's just something I can't get by with, with you working in Omaha, especially working around land since he has the, the Berkshire, you know, real estate. Um, but anyways, Ryan, you've got a long background in land and, and you've been a consistent uh, high level producer as, as a land agent or a, a land professional. Uh, tell me how you got into this. What would, what's your background? You know, uh, it just kind of, um, morphed into real estate. Really. I started off, you know, as any farm kid does, you know, age 10, you're out there running the equipment, um, you know, planting, harvesting, you're running the irrigation equipment, uh, did that over the summers in between high school and college, uh, college. I took a, uh, some real estate courses, liked them. Um, when I graduated, well, before I even graduated college at the age of 21, I had my real estate license, um, stayed back and started selling houses. And then I did that for four or five years figured I wanted to make a go at the, you know, the land because that's my background was farming. So I, uh, I, I just started my own little company at that time. I do believe that was around early 2000, I think 2002 is when I started my own little land company. 
and focused on agricultural and transitional ground just outside of Omaha. And it's really developed to what we have now. Awesome. So, so you were one of those kids, right. That grew up in the ag family. I've always made the joke that the farm families and ranch families, they don't have kids. They increase their workforce. What, what age were you when you started? I, it, yeah, it, it, as soon as I could probably walk, I was doing something. Um, so, so yeah, whether it was uh, cleaning out hog pins, feeding the cattle, you know, simple things like that when you were younger. And uh, then, you know, just like any farm kid, before you actually have your actual driver's license by 16, you know, you're operating multi-million dollar equipment and, uh, you know, so it was one of those things before you start driving, you actually have your driver's license, you're out there in the fields working and, uh, you know, yeah, increasing the workforce, helping everybody out. That's that's the name of the game on the farm. Yeah, I my family had a uh, our business was a feed mill. I remember starting in at seven years old, I'd go in there and sweep out the augers and, and, and be shoveling grain like off the dock and everything. And I've always. I've always just kind of wondered about, you know, kids that didn't experience that. It's like, what, what did they do with their childhood? Nobody even picked up a shovel. <laughs> yeah, I know. There's, there's times where I, I can remember, um, you know, going in, uh, especially my junior and senior year of high school, uh, we'd have our two days of football. Well, in between the practices or after practices, I was out, you know, I had either feed the hogs or, or cleaning the hog pins um, walk the beans, you know, cause that was early August, late August. So there were still things to do. We had mow all the farm places. So those, those are things I was doing. And, and you know, my buddies, they were like, Oh yeah, I'm so tired. I'm just going to go lay down. No, not me. I, I had to go, I had to go, uh, do something on the farm, but to be totally honest with you, I wouldn't trade that for anything. Oh yeah. Oh, well, and, and I, I talk about it. I wasn't even, Mine was more of a summer activity. I would I would get shipped off to work with my uncle and my grandpa, really, because I was a pain in the neck. So it was it was a way for it was a way to give mom some relief. I think. Um, so so yeah, you you work around Nebraska and and talk to me. It seems you know you specialized in agricultural land for most of your career. Uh, so is that still what you work with the most? Yes. Yeah. For Nebraska, I'm licensed in Nebraska and Iowa, and uh, yes. It, if I could do one thing every day, it'd be, be, be looking at, uh, you know, your tillable tracks, whether it's dry land or, or irrigated land. So if, yeah, that's what I would love to do day in and day out. Does it always happen that way? No. I also kind of, kind of go look at transitional ground close to Omaha that could be divided up. I've had my hand in some commercial projects, uh, for some reason, I found found a niche in the mobile home park industry. Um, so it, just kind of all facets, really. But yes, if I had if I had my preference, yes, it would be tillable tracks. And, and when we're talking about agricultural land, there, there's three types, right? Can you walk us through and, and just explain those a little bit? Yeah, you kind of have three little types. Uh, you would have your your irrigated ground and dry land, which you could classify all those as tillable. Then you, then you have your pasture, your grassland. So maybe not three types, you really have two types, uh, but, uh, you know, tillable and pasture. Perfect. And, and so one of the things I wanted to put out front here, because it, it has been an interesting thing, and I think that you can support 
more than I can sort of because you have your boots on the ground more than I do. Um, you know, the, the big news right now is market correction. And we hear about that in, in the real estate market, specifically around residential real estate. We've had a lot of um, it's been driven by during during the COVID epidemic. A lot of people were buying houses in rural areas, getting out of the city. There was there was an element out of that. There there were dis, there's different there's different statistical points to be made up of that. Some some show people moving primarily to suburbs and not necessarily rural. But I think people in rural communities definitely noticed population increases. Um, but we've started seeing some of that that market correction where residential prices are starting to decrease. What can you tell me about the ag market, specifically farming, ranching? I guess that takes up the ag market. But, but what, what can you tell me about what you're seeing with values and, and how those are maintaining? Well, and you bring up an interesting point. You know, when people are looking at real estate in general, and I use air quotes when I say real estate, they tend to view the residential side of things because that's what a lot of people um, associate real estate with. But in the agricultural side of things, I'm not seeing a market correction. I'm not seeing price uh, lowering. I, I, I really don't see a downturn. I, I, I constantly see newer, higher prices um, in each county that I'm working in. Yeah, and, and that's sort of reflective of what we're seeing in the data sort of nationwide as you've seen price per acre increasing, even though you're seeing houses drop. What we're seeing right now in, in the residential markets is anywhere up to 14%. And, you know, that's not happening in ag. And, you know, can you shed some light on sort of why why people might be looking at ag even though you know you're looking at sort of a, a recessionary period or you know and i realize we're on the front end of it we can't really say whether we're in a true recessionary period or not you don't really right. know until you're like in the middle of it right so um yeah, it's too so, early to tell yeah yeah exactly you know i i think uh it, it, it kind of to revisit your previous question, I think that one of the reasons why the, the residential side of things is dipping is partly because interest rates have risen and they've increased the interest rates here. And that is maybe taking out a lot of buyers where some of your buyers for agricultural ground, they're cash buyers. They, they don't really need to go to the bank. So the increase in interest rates, they're not affecting them. Um, they still need to have the ground to increase their family farm size, increase their, their tillable amount, uh, increase their pasture for their carrying capacity of their cattle. Um, so there's still that want and need for the agricultural land. Yeah, and that's, it, that's very, uh, yeah, I'd say on point is, you know, even with previous episodes that we've done with lending talking about that, where the, the land industry is very unique in terms of real estate, where it is hard to acquire loans for land, especially agricultural land. It's most of the loan system in the U.S. is geared up for residents. And when we're talking about land, it's hard to get a loan. And what you see is a lot of uh, it's cash, you know, a cash business and people use cash to purchase or they're at least putting down 50 percent, you know, in a lot of right. cases, or you can see government loans covering up to 50 percent. But you don't see that in, in residential, you know, you put down five, 10% and, and you're golden. Um, but in, in, yeah, but people don't have the, 
you know, to order to go in there and, and land and like what you said, put 50% down, that might not be 50% cash. They have a land base or land holdings that they can allocate the, some type some type of funds hmm. or additional collateral and saying, okay, I've got this farm over here. I'm going to use it for collateral to purchase this one. And there, there may be no money down, so to speak, but they have, you know, the land base or the amount of acres that they need uh, to uh, offer it as additional collateral. That's a good point too, as far as, it, you know, it might not be cash, but there's going to be a tangible asset behind it as opposed to just, you know, straight up loan 90% um, that you see a lot of the time. And, and, and to boot, you know, when you're talking agriculture, there might be a recessionary period, there might be a market correction in some areas, but what people are always going to do is eat and agriculture produces that food and it still holds value and it, it maintains sort of a hedge uh, status, right? When you're talking about investing is a lot of people use land to hedge things. I don't think necessarily, sometimes in the ag market, depending on, on what the business structure of the, the enterprise is, but um, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting to note that, that in the last few months, we've seen increases in agricultural land in terms of price per acre. Um, so let's talk a little bit about, um, you know, what, what makes your area good for agriculture? Nebraska has a reputation for agriculture. The whole Midwest is sort of an agricultural area, but specifically Nebraska has a great reputation for it. What, what makes it so, so great for that? Um, I would say the, the rainfall really for Iowa and Nebraska, um, you know, the rainfall and especially for Nebraska, we have the, uh, the Ogallala aquifer underneath us and we've got plenty of water for irrigation. That is, that I think is one of the key things that we have, Nebraska has over really any other state. But the thing is, is now I don't know how much truth there is in this, but they always say every hundred miles to the east, you get an extra inch of rainfall. Now, Iowa obviously is east of Nebraska, so they get a little bit more rainfall than Nebraska does. Um, there are there are areas in Iowa where they do have irrigation center pivots, but yet um, I think they get a lot, lot more rainfall than we do here in the northeast part of uh, Nebraska. So that's one of the things is we got, we have plenty of water. We can, we can irrigate a lot. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I think that's, that's the biggest plus that we have here and plus good soil types too. Um, you know, yeah, there are some areas, um, out West of Nebraska. Yeah. We have sandier soils, Northern part, North central, there are some sandier soils, but they're still with the irrigation and the water, they're able to, to make some, some good yields. Uh, but then Iowa, you know, a lot of it is, is dry land. Um, but they, they make phenomenal yields. They have good soil types over there. So, uh, water and good soil types, uh, as far as if you're just trying to do a broad stroke of both States in general. And you discussing yields brings to mind sort of that goes into the valuation of cropland as well. Just explain really quick how how you evaluate cropland because I think it's an interesting topic for anybody that's not associated necessarily with agriculture. I think it's you know it's secondhand for anybody that's in the industry. But just for from an outside perspective, what goes into sort of evaluating when you're looking at a specific piece of cropland? 
it really will start with location. Um, you know, you want to look at the availability of water in within that area that you're in, and then you're getting down to uh, basically your soil types. Uh, in Nebraska, we have classifications from one to six, and then but then in Iowa, they have the the CSR ratings, um, which it gives you an average of your soils um, across the board, which. I really like the CSR ratings that Iowa does versus the classifications of one through six uh, in Nebraska. So it, it, it is a little bit uh, in Nebraska, it's a little bit harder to sit there and, and break it down as far as getting a soil classification. But that's primarily what you want to look at is, is soil classifications what it has, um, you know, obviously a sandier soil isn't going to produce as good as, as uh, you know, good black dirt. So you just have to look at that. And then, you know, in some areas, there's a mix of that. Do you take into account current yield or past yield when you're looking at evaluating, a, a, you know, any kind of land? You, you do and you don't. Um, I'll, I'll only... <laughs> Kind of answer that as a yes and no question, really. <laughs> that was a, that was kind of a tough one because uh, you know uh, farmers operators can sit there and you know and say, oh, across the board, you know, our corn did three hundred. Well, you know, that's kind of more like a fish story. You know, you stretch it, stretch it a little bit. Uh, but for the most part, you can you can kind of tell you know what kind of operator they are, what yields they get. You know, and, and yields really depend on, you know, if water, you know, if it's irrigated, then it depends on how much fertilizer you put on, you know, is, is your weed control good? You know, those, those things will affect yields, um, you know, but if you have a dry land, you're dependent on mother nature. And if you have a real dry summer, it's, you know, your yields are going to suffer on that, um, you know, or if the price of fertilizer skyrocketed and you're like, I'm not going to put that many units on, you know, it, it's just it depends on your business model. It depends on mother nature. There, there's a lot of depend, you know, variables when it comes into that. So that's why I say yes and no when you're doing your, your valuation, because one year you may have a bumper crop. The, the other year might not be so good. Um, you know, and the other thing too, to look at too, Mac, you, you know, when it comes to the mother nature, you might get hail out too, and that'll affect your crops, uh, or, or high winds and you have some green snap and you have a bunch of corn laying down. So mother nature can either help you or hurt you, you know, and then, then it also affects your yields on those things too. Yeah. I was going to say, there's probably a good reason why uh, commodities trading is known as the most volatile as far as investments go, just because you have those natural disasters. And then, and then like to your point, and maybe you can expand upon this a bit is especially with dry land or, or kind of any, any sort of crop where, you know, depending on your rotations, depending on what you're growing, you know, you're going to, you're going to deplete the soil at a certain point, unless you're using certain practices. So you have to replace the nutrients in the soil. Talk to me a little bit about that. Yeah, no-till practices are, are, are the best, but then there are some years, you know, you may have to till it under, um, you know, a lot of the guys will do their end rows and stuff just because, you know, your, your combines and tractors will compact the soil. Um, but then, but then the, the big thing to watch for is 
okay, you get, let's, you get through harvesting, you leave all the corn stalks out there. That's going to replenish a lot of your nutrients, um, phosphorus, uh, nitrates back in the soil as they decompose. That's why no-till practice really is the best practice. Um, but if you come in there, and a lot of the guys will use those corn stalks for um, for their, their feedlot, you know, they, they need something to, to add to their, uh, their silage that they feed to the cattle. And, but if you do that, you kind of take that away. So you got to replenish that back into your soil somehow. Um, so you just have to go spread some, you know, phosphorus back onto, uh, your, your fields there that you took those, those corn stalks out on because they didn't give the winter to decompose and work their way back into the soils. Yeah, how, so, so how expensive is tilling? What, what, what goes into that? It, tilling or, or, or just putting, uh, um, your, uh, your nutrients back in the soil. Well, let's go both. Cause I mean, there's, they're, they're kind of alternatives to each other. Right. Um, if I'm understanding correctly. Uh, you got two different things. So, so if you're going to go in there and till the ground, turn it up, you know, that's, that's just a pass over the field, you know, with your field cultivator. Uh, but that's, that's just getting the soil ready, uh, basically. Um, so, so that's just, that's just a pass over the field. You know, if you got equipment, uh, if you don't have the equipment, you can always, always hire someone to custom farm that custom do that for you in that, in that aspect of things. But most guys, they, you know, they have some type of a field finisher uh, to, to, do, to do that. Um, but if you're looking at, you know, putting your phosphate, your phosphorus, nitrates or nitrogen back into the soil, um, you know, I had I actually had to ask my brother this question because he says, you know, just with everything that's going on this year, I mean, you can pick an excuse, whether it's a Russia and Ukraine deal, whether it's inflation, uh, whether it's the diesel fuel. Um, he said just basically this year, you know, it's, it's an extra hundred dollars an acre uh, versus last year. So that, so the cost of your fertilizers and chemicals have gone up and it also depends on the region that you're in because you know it, it, you could be right next door to a supplier and it doesn't take you anything to get to it you know like like in my family farms case we're 15 minutes away from a supplier but let's say you're out in the western part of the state and it's a couple hours or an hour away so you your your shipping cost now with diesel fuel is gonna get an increase um, you know, the other, the other side of the thing is, is the cost of apple, you know, applying that to your farm. Um, you know, whether you have your own sprayer or you're hiring the guy at the local co-op to apply it, it, it there's so many variables to that aspect of things. When you, when you're talking about fertilizer and chemicals, there's, I'd, I'd hate to give you any type of figures at this point. Well, I mean, you know, in case you can't tell, I don't come from a farming specific background. So this is this is where I get to leverage your lifetime of knowledge and just learn. And that's where I really get That's really where I love these these podcasts for the most part is is I just get fed with a fire hose, just all this great information. And it's like I, I picture somebody listening to me try to talk about things that knows farming. I'm like, man, this guy's an idiot. But <laughs> well, farming is like, oh, well, I can appreciate all that. But, you know, I do have a wealth of knowledge behind me 
you know, my dad, my brother, they, they do that day in and day out. You know, I've kind of fallen back and yeah, now I'm sitting behind the desk a little bit more than I want to, but, um, I have a wealth of knowledge that I could just pick up a phone and call. <laughs> That's helpful too. Right. So, so I do have to give some credit there to, to them. It's, 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 it's not all me. I'll tell you that. You got the, you got the phone a friend network. Exactly. That's yeah. What talk show was that? Can I phone a friend? Uh, who wants to be a millionaire? I think, right? Yeah, exactly. Who wants to be a, be a millionaire in farm ground? Yeah, yeah. Phone a friend, please. I think there were a lot of farmers that would argue that it's, it's not a thing. <laughs> it's probably not. <laughs> um, so, you know, let's kind of bounce into into the the, the areas of buying and selling of cropland because that's kind of you know that's what what we do as an organization, and I think that that's helpful to anybody looking at the, where they own land, they've inherited land from grandpa or their parents, or or maybe they're just looking you know they're worn out and they're tired of hot days and and sitting in a you know in a combine kind of stuff, or maybe someone's looking to get into it. Um, I want to look at that from both sides. Uh, so. So what let's and let's consider you know sellers first. If someone is considering selling land, they have crop land, they have open land. Um, what should they know before they even go about the process? What's sort of the things that they want to have together and and really get their head around? Well, you know, most of the guys th- that own agricultural land, they are very well versed of of how to do it, what I need to do. Um, so so there's not you know. I don't want to say those guys, those guys probably, I'll tell you this, those guys know more about the land that they're about ready to sell than I do. It's more me interviewing them and saying, okay, what do you have here? What have you done to the place? You know, and, and having them educate me so I can put it out there for sale. Um, That's, you know, I, I, it's, it's, it's really, it's not like a residential agent going in and say, you should really paint this wall. You should really change that carpet out. Um, you know, agricultural landowners, they know their stuff. Um, is, is, does that come down even to the standpoint of valuation, you know, or do you, or do you encounter farm farmland or ranch land where you go up and, you know, they want $10 million for five acres, some, you know, something like that. Is, is there some expectation sitting there or do they usually know the value pretty well? They'll, they'll know their value very well be, uh, because, you know, A, they, there'll be auctions out there and, and those, those prices are publicized. They're usually smaller communities. Everybody knows each other for the most part. And, you know, they talk about it, you know, they'll, they'll say, hey, did you see that Christensen Farms? You know what it sold for? You know, so so they they know very well. uh, They have a good handle on what it's worth. Um, So it's it's, you know, but I still will come prepared. And within that county, I will start looking at, you know, dry land sales, irrigated sales, trying to compare it to what they have. Obviously, you know, each each tract is different. Um, There's no perfect track. There's no uh, track that looks exactly like the other one. So there's going to be positives and negatives to each one. But yeah, you, you come prepared with with land sales with them. And then we sit there and discuss, you know, the positive and negatives. And then we say, OK, yeah, this one's this one's better or worse than the one that just sold. OK. And so in, in that respect, 
this this is a crowd that it's, it's not like your your rec land owner that has has a parcel somewhere that they see once a year and they don't probably know have a whole grasp of the of the value this is somebody who's you know elbow deep in the land every day and knows the value of it and knows how it produces right yeah yeah they've they've been on it they've taken care of it you know it's it's their baby and uh you know and the last thing you want to do is go in there and call their baby ugly and, and you know they, they want they want you know ten thousand dollars an acre and you're sitting there saying looking on paper it looks to me it's eight thousand so how do we bridge this two thousand dollar gap uh so that's that's what we're you know that's what we're out there trying to do um i don't know if that's a good example or not but <laughs> i think that's a great example um you know and that kind of leads me to you know number one is they're probably going to I know that there's some private transactions in, in the ag market, but really, you know, for them to find a good land professional to work with, you know, what does a seller want to find in a land professional to, to work with them on selling their land? Well, if, in my experience, the first thing that they're going to do is, is really interview you to get to know you uh, to figure out what your background is. Um, if you can, if you, if you can talk the talk and walk the walk with them, then they, they, they're comfortable with you, then yes, they're, they're going to proceed forward with listing it. Um, so I, I don't know. I hope that answers your question. I just, yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, what I, what I take from that is, is it's gotta be a good fit as far as communication. Like you've got to be able to talk together. You know, they want to find somebody who can communicate in a way that they kind of meld with, you know? Yeah. Yeah. When you can sit there and talk farming about them and ask them what their yields are, you know, if, if you're out there looking at it and let's say it's an irrigated quarter and you, you're talking, you know, or it's a valley pivot or it's a zematic pivot. Okay. Is this a electric unit or does it have a power unit? You know, what type of power unit do you have running there? You know, you can start asking those questions and, and then it just starts flowing. Uh, to, to me, it's just, it's just, you know, the art of sitting there talking to them and, and maybe not just jumping in right away and say, okay, what do you got? What does it worth? You know, just those dry questions that way. I don't, I don't really, I don't really think that anybody wants to be, uh, have a salesman come up to them like that. Yeah. Nobody wants to be sold to, you know, like that it's that you want to, you want to sort of know that you can get along and know that you can have a relationship and to boot, I was going to say, Thank you for solidifying to me in the course of that, what everything that you just said that I should never ever sell a farm. Um, I have no idea what you just said or what any of that meant. (laughs) (laughs) This concludes part one of episode number 13 of the National Land Realty Podcast, discussing agricultural land with Nebraska land professional Ryan Schroeder. Be sure to tune in next week for the second half of our interview with Ryan Schroeder to learn more about farmland. You can learn more about land ownership and the buying and selling of land at nationalland.com. Hey there, listener. I noticed that you're still hanging out, probably listening to the music. But uh, what I wanted to do was remind you to check out our Land Tour 360s at nationalland.com. These, 
these land tours are innovative, interesting, and nobody else in the industry does this. Check out our site, look for any listing that has Land Tour 360 featured on it. You can tour our listings in three dimensions, zoom in, get a ground's eye view, watch videos from the ground, zoom back out, look at things from the sky view, then zoom back in on properties that have 3D views of, of the houses that are on the properties. This is called a Matterport viewing. It's a 3D viewing system for, for housing. Check out Land Tour 360. It should blow you away. Thank you for listening and we'll see you next week.